The TARDIS is attacked by an alien force. Bernice is flung into the vortex and the Doctor and Ace crash land on Earth. An attack by dinosaurs convinces the Doctor that he and Ace have arrived in the Jurassic era. But when they find a woman being hunted by intelligent reptiles, he begins to suspect that something is very wrong. Then, they meet the embittered Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, leading the remnants of Unit in a hopeless fight against the Silurians who rule his world. And they find out that it all began when the Doctor died. Secret Library of St. John the Beheaded. I am your host. Wolsey the Cat is asleep over there. As usual. And we are here to talk about one of the great Virgin New Adventures, Blood Heat, by Jim Mortimer. Coming up, I'll be chatting with Ryan Blake. We'll also be hearing from some other members of our reading group, including Andrew, Kevin, David, and James. But before all that, let's listen to James read the prelude of the novel. We tortured the mams for a couple of hours before killing them. You didn't need to link to feel their fear. They cried and touched each other at the end, actually cuddled up to each other as if their closeness could protect them from us. It was disgusting. One of the males placed itself in front of the others. It gibbered at us, shaking its hairy fists and making those stupid noises with its vocal cords Kto thinks of primitive words. Kto is stupid. Everyone knows no life form with only a voice box will ever learn to communicate. Laughing, we focused our contempt on them through the bars of the cage and burned out their minds. When they were dead, we levitated the carcasses and threw them far outside the city gates. It amused us to watch other animals fighting over their bodies. These days, food is scarce outside the city when you're a stupid man. And fun is scarce inside the city when you're a Silurian prince. Night found me lying flat on the crystal roof of the palace, gazing up at the sky. The stranger was a few degrees north of the pole star. A cold blue light in the heavens, easily visible even if you didn't know where to look for it. Tonight it was bright, but tomorrow it would be brighter still, and the night after that yet brighter, until... There was a sound behind me. Father stepped onto the palace roof. He walked towards me, passed without linking, stopped at the edge of the roof to gaze out over the crystal spires of the now deserted city, towards the forest beyond. He was quiet for a long time. Father? He linked without turning. You killed the mammals today, Morka. It was not a question and I knew it. The caged animals which were to be taken into the shelters. It wasn't just me, it was Kachal as well. He... Father held up a hand, the webbing between his fingers trembling angrily. To my shame, he spoke without linking, as if I was still newly hatched. 
You know we must prepare a balanced ecology for the time when the stranger has left our skies. Father, they were just mams. Kachal and I were bored. We, the mams, must be replaced. I will hunt for more tomorrow. I scrambled to my feet. But father, that means you won't be coming into the shelter with me. You may spend the rest of the night thinking about that. You may also consider whether your friendship with Kachal is entirely appropriate. But why can't Kachal's father... There will be no argument. Kachal's father is responsible for sealing the shelters. Everyone else is already in hibernation. The mammals must be preserved, therefore I must hunt them. But we don't need the mams. Everyone knows that. You're the leader. You don't need to obey the rules. Father's third eye began glimmering angrily. I felt a sharp pain in my limbs. If that is what you think, then know this. A leader is more subject to the rules than are his people. I don't understand. I Enough, Morka. He turned to leave, hesitated, quivering with anger. When you are summoned to the shelters, you will obey. Do you understand? I said miserably, but I'm afraid of the cold. Father said nothing. He turned back to face me one final time. Good night, Morka. And then he was gone. The warmth in his voice had done nothing to ameliorate the coldness in his mind. He was disappointed with me. Worse, he was embarrassed. I realised now he had considered me an adult, and I realised how my immature action must have shamed him. I gazed up at the stranger, flung a bolt of mental energy at it, and was not surprised when all my rage had no effect on it whatsoever. Resolving not to endure my shame alone, I linked with Kachal. I'd already made one mistake. The second was fatal. The stranger was a swollen glow in the sky, clearly visible through thin, scudding clouds. The swamps were flooding because of the higher tides. Far across the great plains, volcanoes lit the underside of the clouds with a sulfurous light. This was the scene later that night as I urged my Dilophosaurus into the near reaches of the western forest. Kachal was beside me, riding a Plateosaurus only two years from the nest. Nets were fastened to both our saddles. We had no Herorosaurus. We wanted to capture, not kill. We found the mams gibbering nervously in a huddle around one of the bigger tangle trees. The little tribe only had about 30 or 40 members in it. Neither of us anticipated any trouble. We expected the mams to scatter a bit as we approached, to run about, squeaking like they always did, maybe to scream and pound their chests as sometimes happened. What really happened took us completely by surprise. The mams attacked. I suppose it must have been panic that motivated them, or fear. There was no organisation, no concerted effort. They were mams, after all. But what happened was bad enough. As Kachal and I approached, they began to mill around, jumping up and down, screeching louder and louder. I linked with Kachal and he shrugged mentally. We continued forwards. Then from high in the tree came the first surprise. Rocks! The mams were throwing rocks at us! The first rock struck Iktar on the head. He fell to the ground and I could see blood seeping from the crest of his skull. I ran to him, but somehow there seemed to be hairy bodies in the way, bodies on which I stamped furiously. 
The screeching sound they made increased. Now I couldn't tell if the sound was only outside my head or inside it as well. It was like Charles screaming at me. I tried to link. I tried to... Something tangled in my feet. My net. I fell to the ground, scrambling madly. I turned over and saw sticks in hairy fists raised against the starlight. Rocks looped out of the darkness, smashing into the ground around me. Something wet trickled down the side of my face. Was I bleeding? Had one of the vermin hit me? The sticks began to rise and fall. Now I began to feel the pain. The smell was overpowering. The mams were all over me, screeching, beating me and each other in a frenzy of bloodlust, their teeth ripping at my skin. I felt a hot breath on my cheek, closed my eyes so they could not be bitten. The egg only knew what filthy diseases these vermin carried. How dare they, I thought. I'm a prince, a Silurian. Then one of the sticks crunched down onto my skull crest and... When I awoke, the forest was burning. Further towards the plains, a volcanic eruption had split the ground. Sparks and little trickles of lava were already glimmering in the distance. I looked around. The ground was littered with twenty or thirty hairy bodies. One or two were dragging themselves away on damaged limbs. In the middle of this carnage was a larger form. Kchal. I ran to him. No life stirred in his breast. His third eye was fixed open, an expression of rage on his face. This was how the mams had finally been dispatched. Kachal had saved my life. And the mams had killed him for his courage. I threw back my head and screamed my rage into the night. Twenty paces away, a hairy form squealed and fell dead to the ground. Then I picked up my dead friend and began to walk back to the city. I met father near the city. He had come out into the night and was looking for me. He saw Kachal in my arms but made no attempt to take him from me. There was no comfort in him for me when he linked. The city is unsafe because of the earthquake. The entrance to the shelter has been buried under tons of rubble. We cannot go in there. I gaped silently. What are we to do? We must try to reach the northern city where Okdal is leader. The shelters there will have room for us. But Kachal! The choice to hunt tonight was yours, Morka. Now you have another choice. Bury your friend or carry him with us. I cannot leave him. If you cannot leave the past behind you, then the burden is yours to carry alone. Oh, Father, what do you mean? I don't understand. I pray that you will understand when you are older. Without another word, he turned and walked away into the burning night. I hesitated for a moment, remembering the cold thrill of fear. The image of a stick in a hairy fist silhouetted against the glowing disc of the stranger. Then I, too, began to walk. As I walked, the weight of Kachal in my arms turned my fear into anger and then into a deep, unforgiving rage. A rage that would last a hundred million years. I took the leap. Somebody's heart... My podcast that I write and host is called Wibbly Wobbly Dicey Wicey, and it's a Doctor Who role-playing game podcast. And and I, I I've hunted the length and breadth of uh, the internet to 
more or less be able to confirm this, that we're the only non-actual play Doctor Who RPG podcast that seems to exist. If there is another one out there, please contact me. This is the podcaster, Ryan Blake. Uh, Our Twitter handle is at WWDWRPG. Um, And if you listen to one of our podcasts, you can find us on any of the regular podcast locations. And we've got an email address and a blog. And what we do is we talk about different themes in Doctor Who and how to run them in a role-playing game. We've got a section called Another Universe, where we literally convert characters from other universes and we talk about how you could fit them into your Doctor Who role-playing game. Um, and we do occasionally review the source books. And I, we've got a couple of very exciting interviews coming up with the big wigs at Cubicle 7 who published the game. And you'll get a lot of sneak peeks into what's coming out in the new year. There's a lot of exciting stuff uh, coming out. So, yeah, so we're kind of a holistic approach to the Doctor Who role-playing game Oeuvre. We also do talk about the FASA version and the Virgin Publishing Time Lord version, if anyone can remember that. So we cover Oh, it. I remember that. Yeah, the, the role playing game where they wouldn't let you make your own characters and um, the rules were, let's say sparse. Let's be generous and say sparse. <laughs> uh, but well, yes. We're, so- we're all about being generous on this show. So let's go with that. <laughs> But yes, but yes, please, please come and have a listen. If you've got any interest in Doctor Who and pop culture, full stop. A lot of our discussions, we have we have tangents. So there's something for everyone who likes science fiction and Doctor Who. Well, I don't think you could have. Uh, well, I mean, you you couldn't. You did a great job. I don't think I could have summed it up any better than that. I think that's uh, a perfect advert for what sounds like a great podcast. But Ryan, we are here to talk about. The Jim Mortimer new adventure, Blood Heat. And I've got to say, we did um, we did Bell Tempest recently. Yes, and it did, it did not come out very favorably. So I'm I'm hoping we're going to find more to love in this particular um, episode. Can I start, though, by asking you? How old were you when you got into Doctor Who? And can you remember sort of when that was, what your first stories were, that kind of thing? Right. So that's a two-tiered answer. My first memory of Doctor Who, of me watching it in real time, is Peter Davison turning into Colin Baker. That's my one, my first clear memory. My first story that I remember watching was the first episode of trial of a time lord um the, the bit where you've got the the big gallifrey and starbreaker ship and the camera yeah, yeah. around it that, that amazing shot that's my first time that's the first time i started watching it properly weirdly enough during all of this i was reading the target novelizations which is kind of strange considering i wasn't watching it regularly until that point much later so and and what we the book we're reading today is uh, I started reading the Virgin New Adventures the second they came out because by that stage I was a massive Doctor Who fan and I, I didn't want it to end, more or less. So Brilliant. So we're on very much the same page in terms of our experience, at least with the New Adventures. Um, it is interesting that you were reading the Target books but not watching the show, but then I suppose it would have only been season 22 that you missed. 
yeah and and also i mean faces of doctor who hadn't been on the tv yet and uh i was too young to buy vhs's i think my, the, i do know my first vhs purchase was city of death with tom baker and that that just completely like re i don't know redoubled my desire to you know enjoy doctor who so i had no idea at that point that city of death was like one of the most popular one of the best episodes and i just saw it and just thought wow and so novels and everything followed yeah that's really cool my first vhs was death to the daleks and it was i don't know i i feel like it's kind of aged pretty well at the time it was a bit embarrassing when all my school friends were buying like a batman movie or something else equally you know you can't argue with how good that is and there's me yeah. with my with my john pertwee crappy story but anyway um how can we possibly get from john pertwee to uh talking about blood heat um hmm well blood, blood heat <laughs> it's a, it's a unit story isn't it it's oh, oh just as a side note i for years thought his name was pronounced jim mortimori just, just want to drop. Really, what in a sort of Polidori type way? Yes, because I'd never heard it spoken, and I, I, and I thought, why would you put an e at the end like that? So I thought it was Mortimori for some reason. I think I was reading a lot of the Stoics uh, as well for my philosophy degree, so it's probably something like that, Memento Mori or something. Well, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in any way an expert. I could be wrong. Maybe it is Mortimori. I mean, if, if he was here with us, he'd probably say, yeah, that sounds a lot more, a lot cooler than Mortimer. You know, Impossible, imagine yeah. imagine being a comedian called Bob Mortimore. Oh, that's that is that's the posh, somewhere in an alternate universe. There's a posh version of Victory is not out where it's Bob Mortimore. <laughs> I, I say, what is, what, what is on the end of that stick? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what, it's some uh, lavender skincare products from my very posh Mortimore school of posh facial products. I say you would you you actually wouldn't let it lie, would you? You cad. <laughs> I wouldn't let it lie, no, because uh, I've got some very posh products to sell to it from my Mortimore <laughs> Academy. Anyway, <laughs> so um, however you pronounce the guy's name, um, let's let's go back to my questions, please. They must be rigidly adhered to <laughs> at all times, or I can't cope. Um, but What's yeah, start for ten. Uh, Blood heat. It's a unit story. What do you? Uh, what do the unit stories mean to you? How does this fit in with with that legacy? Right. Well, um, I came to unit retroactively. I watched Battlefield, which I think gets an unnecessary amount of grief, and I saw that was the first time I'd seen the Brigadier in real time. Yeah. And I thought I. And then I I found out. Oh, there's there's more of this i've got to go back and the third doctor i grabbed as much of the third doctor as i could and that period that early third doctor period became my i think my favorite period of doctor who for a long 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 time so i'm a big fan of unit when it's done properly because i, I feel like the brigadier is written very inconsistently sometimes he's super smart and savvy and other times he is less so let's be generous and say less. he's i mean sometimes he's a sort of gibbering idiot i mean the three doctors is probably the the low point but certainly oh. of the stories i've seen 
Yes, yes, I'm fairly sure that's Chroma. I mean, it just, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, yeah, in my in my head, it was just shock. You know, he he just he was he was, he was shocked by what's what's been happening, and his brain went on holiday for a bit to Costa Rica or somewhere. Yeah, well, maybe it was that. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? So yeah, so so as a, a unit story fan, you know, how did you feel seeing this kind of potential? future where let's be honest things haven't gone so well and everyone's on their last legs and units are almost defeated but the the last five people in in what's left of the uk at this point are the brigadier benton joe grant and um liz shaw well i think when you've got a show that's as long running as doctor who you do end up inevitably having the sort of post-apocalyptic mirror universe version of them where everyone is a nasty piece of work the i mean the brigadier is doing his best under impossible circumstances benton seems more or less to be benton but just a benton push to the edge he, he seems to come out of it the best i think what, what's interesting is the point at which history went wrong is so early in the unit relationship that it, it, it flips it on its head because when when you have um, the John Pertwee doctor discovers that the brigadier has killed all of those sleeping Silurians, he ha- is just he has all this rage towards the brigadier and he doesn't trust the brigadier as much. But in this, they've only just started to get to know each other and we're going straight in for spoilers, yeah? Yo, absolutely. Yeah, and the third doctor is just. Um, yeah, he's he's just out of it. He, he's just he's gone before before they even establish a, a relationship. There is no unit family in this, and so the it's it's made doubly tragic because the what what was such a glorious relationship and was, was such a good basis for stories is gone. It never had the chance to start. Uh, it's a bit like um, uh, if I'm going to go on a bit of a geek deep dive here. It's a bit like the X-Men comics Age of Apocalypse where someone goes back and kills Professor X so there were no X-Men and everything goes wrong. Uh, mm. I mean, this this preempts that by a few years, but at the same time, it's very much uh, that idea that the, 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 the establishment, the, the, the firmament upon which we put all our trust is gone. So this Doctor, you know, the Seventh Doctor meets this version of the Brigadier and the Seventh Doctor's got all these memories of them working together and he sees how far the Brigadier has fallen. Whereas the Brigadier looks at this doctor and says, well, I knew you for five minutes. Uh, you helped out once or twice and then you were gone. So uh, it's a very interesting way of doing it. There are a lot of more average and repeated ways of doing this. And I think Jim Mortimori Mortimer, <laughs> uh, does a really good job of of putting a twist on the twist, if you like. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. It is, you know, the second John Pertwee story that's been meddled with here. And yeah, the the relationship really wouldn't be like in the book, I got this sense of kind of regret that that relationship wasn't there. Maybe the I can't even remember where it came from. I'm guessing the doctor. Um, but yeah, there there wouldn't have been that trust or that closeness or that kind of team spirit. Yeah, which, which I mean, I, I, I would say this to anyone listening, you probably will need a lie down or a whiskey after this one. Um, <laughs> because it's, it's I don't know, I mean, 
would you say it's on the bleak side? How would you describe it? What's your what would you... it's so um, it it starts out quite bleak, but by its very nature as a Doctor Who story, you are pre-wired to believe everything's going to be okay. Then the Doctor's kind of absent from large chunks of the middle, and you follow Ace on this fairly tedious shopping expedition to the remains of London and then and then the book just kind of concludes without doing what you expect from a Doctor Who story and it is yeah it's very much not what you'd expect and um you know pulling the reader out of their their comfort zone and we'd presumably have read this at the same time if you were a you know, buy them as soon as they're published, kind of guy like I was. This was what ninety three. This was, yeah. I mean, I want to say September. It might be October. I think it was October ninety three, wasn't it? Yeah, that's that's it's yeah. It came out in ninety three, and it was set in ninety three. It was contemporary yeah. with itself. Yeah, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, this this was quite a. I don't know if, if logical is the right word to use, but. Um, for want of a better one, it, it, the ending is a kind of logical upping the ante of the seventh doctor because we're in we're in that stage now where the seventh doctor is not really telling anyone anything. There's angst in the TARDIS all the time, and he's trying to figure stuff out. And um, I don't know. Uh, do you want to? Where when do you want to come to discuss the end of this book? Because the ending is is very hard hitting well let's do it now let's do it now well okay so so in the tv show we've got the doctor tricking the daleks into blowing up scarrow one planet mm-hmm. in this he detonates an entire universe um and it's the the it's in many ways a turning point for the whole virgin new adventures because he time rams the other tardis uh, after stealing this alternate version Doctor's TARDIS, rams his own TARDIS, and that destroys this entire universe. Now, here's a weird thing. What did you think about the the sort of changing of um, the sort of Doctor Who rules about alternate universes in this? Because I was a bit... I, I felt like it was tacked on to uh you know add some tragedy to it because you know it, and and going back to this being a sort of offshoot of the third doctor in the third in the third doctor we have that uh inferno we have an alternate universe where things have gone wrong again and we've got that again in this but it's an offshoot it's not an alternate universe it's a, an alternate timeline and the seventh doctor says if he doesn't destroy this universe then it's going to leech off of, you know, the proper timeline, mm. and both of them will die billions of years early, and that 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 really reeked of a lazy answer to the problems the book has set up to me. It, I mean, because if if you're opening an alternate timeline every time any human being makes a decision where they could have made the other decision, then the entire multiverse is going to collapse billions of billions of years prematurely. Um, And I know Doctor Who has played sort of fast and loose with the exact 
physical laws of of multiverses and alternate timelines um and to me it was you know so it's 93 and i suppose i'm watching a lot of red dwarf and uh you know everything's parallel universe this and multiverse that so at the time i didn't really sort of give it a, a second thought um just the the sort of practicality or the brutality of the doctor as he quite calmly goes about destroying a his own old tardis and and b you know killing this this offshoot of the universe because it doesn't quite fit in with with the way you'd like it to be it's he's he's gone he's gone a bit time lord victorious hasn't he well yeah uh, and, and also what's what's really weird is that they throw this out in a if if i can talk about this they throw it out in in 30 odd books time when they have a future doctor pluck this t- pluck his original tardis out in happy endings and give it gives it back to the seventh doctor and they start traveling in the old tardis again so like I said, yeah. it's, it's an odd, yeah. it's an odd duck, it's an odd duck. This there's a, there's an eighth Doctor novel uh, called Sometime Never where they talk about parallel universes, and they say you know there are hundreds of thousands of them side by side that don't affect each other, you know, and infinite possibilities. So in one in one breath they've got a multiverse, in another breath they don't. I would like to posit the theory that the seventh Doctor ego is so inflated by this point, and he he thinks he's so great that the reason he does it is because he cannot stand the idea of a parallel universe so nearby where he is defeated. It's a lovely, it's a lovely theory, the idea that the Doctor's secretly got a massive ego. I mean, because if I'd, so when was this, 93, if I'd spent 30 years swanning around the universe, saving it and, and, you know, getting lots of hot chicks to come travelling with me, I'd get a bit conceited. I'd go a bit, you know, Elvis on tour, kind of. Yeah, I'm indestructible. Hey. Um, so I suppose if you think about the Doctor, I mean, the, the mistake I'm about to make is thinking about the Doctor in sort of human terms and having an ego. He's a Time Lord. We can't possibly know what's going on in his head. But I think you're right. There's got to be a vanity and a self-regard at this point. And... It is a very interesting interpretation of, you know, what is on the one hand a quite a straightforward text. It's quite good that, you know, you've you've managed to wheedle out something in there that's slightly more profound. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, like I said, it's it's and uh, it's also the uh, the catch-all answer of a time ram. A time ram is the universal panacea, I think, in Doctor Who a lot of the time. It seems to be able to do whatever it wants. But it's always done with this terrible, you know, it's 50-50 if we blow up or the other one blows up. But it always seems to work out okay for everyone who's doing it <laughs> deliberately. Unless yes, you're the yeah. master, you know. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So, um, I mean, I think Bell Tempest is obviously after this. But I think by that stage... Uh, Jim Mortimori is um, he just he just likes to blow up things on a large scale because there's like you know a system spanning apocalypse in that but at least in Blood Heat it's personal you know we've come to know all these characters and and they die in the most horrible way possible you know they achieve a kind of victory Pyrrhic or not 
But then the doctor from his ivory tower or his ivory TARDIS, if you like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> takes it all away from them because no one knows he's going to do that. Even his companions, Ace and Benny, don't know he's going to do that. He just decides it's his responsibility. He's got to do it. He rams the other TARDIS. And that universe is is just going to, you know, I mean, I think I can't remember exactly how he described it, but it's not even it doesn't even blow up. It's going to sort of fade away now. He sort of severs it, I think, from the main universe or whatever. So all those people there who finally think they might have a livable planet, they're just going to sort of fade away and they're going to just be terrified by the end, I would imagine. It's going to be like Crisis on Infinite Earths, but slower. Mm. You know, the big antimatter wall is going to come for them and they're going to think, well, how we can't fight this. We can't do anything about it. What do we do? And they just disappear into nothingness. So it's it's an incredibly cruel, lingering death. And I think, I don't know if that's, again, the Seventh Doctor kind of doesn't want the blood on his hands directly. Because if 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 you think about it, if he'd rammed the other TARDIS and the time ram had just detonated that universe, he would have seen the direct cause and effect of, I did this, they are all dead. But what he does is sets it up. He sets it adrift, as it were. So that other universe just sort of like fades out like a ghost, which obviously is much more palatable to his conscience because he's not committed a direct murder then. Yeah, but it's it's kind of cowardice through the back door then, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, I'm going to condemn all these people to death, but as long as it's not a death anyone's really going to notice, then it's really not a problem. Yeah, no, exactly. I, anyway, I, oh, yeah. sorry. No, 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 carry on. This is not related to that, but... but except in, in the in the inverse we're talking about the seventh doctor making these huge decisions and being this super genius there's a bit in this book where the seventh doctor tells ace go to wendley moore and get the tardis key from the corpse of my third doctor self yeah surely the seventh doctor's key is identical to that doctor's and he could have just given ace the tardis key and she could have said <laughs> a journey uh that is a very good point and you have poked a, a, another hole in this book what i suppose people such as uh jim mortimore might say is that the john pertwee tardis key was that weird sort of um hexagonal shaped metal thing with the bumps and yeah. at some point i guess in the early tom baker era he swapped it for a yale lock so he could have a much more prosaic <laughs> yale lock because i imagine tom baker's first day in the office he's like what's this metal fucker i'm not carrying that <laughs> so, um, <laughs> this is the, the posh more version of him yeah 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 <laughs> um so okay so let's quickly look at maybe ace and benny before we um before yeah. we we talk about something else um benny is in the book for what about six pages something like that she is jettisoned well and truly jettisoned yeah uh and i yeah. found that really upsetting i mean for a number of reasons firstly obviously i have a long and abiding romance with benny summerfield and she will be mine um <laughs> but i think it was in uh jim mortimore's first book which he co-wrote with andy lane lucifer rising i think that was at the time one of the very best um depictions of benny summerfield hmm. so i was kind of really hoping for a, a a cracking Benny story here, and she's she's hardly in it at all, which I found heartbreaking. 
Yeah, they seem to want to just have her be having a falling out of Ace. And then f- f- from from just rereading it recently, she just, for some reason, just sticks her hand into a patch of disintegration and disappears. I mean, it's so counter to Benny's, you know, logic and common sense and her, her ability to be a, a great survivor. And she yeah. just thinks, oh, look, there's some oblivion. I'll have some of that. And then goes. She'd have, I'll tell you what, if she'd have been in Terminus, she wouldn't have lasted to the... Oh, my God. God, imagine it. Um, and yeah. Ace, we are back in... She's kind of closer to how she was on the TV, a little bit older, a little bit uh, more jaded with some exciting weaponry. But I think still very much the the, the character that Sophie Aldred played rather than the kind of, you know, really um, cold space bitch that a lot of the authors of the new adventures um you know delivered so did you, how did you feel about that did you enjoy ace here um remarkably i did this is a period i don't really enjoy very much in but in this one i think the author just i, I almost liked her in this which is very high praise from me from this period um <laughs> And and like she's got this big rant at the end, at, angry at the doctor, you know, doing the time room and everything. And I, I was never sure. I think it's meant to be hypocritical. I'm not sure. I mean, when you look at what Ace is like wearing the space marine armor and, you know, talking about how she blew up Daleks and all that stuff. The doctor just does what Ace does on a larger scale. And I, so I think it was supposed to be a big hypocritical speech at the end. Um, it's like we have to know that she's a complete horse's ass for questioning what the doctor needs to do. Now she's a super soldier. It's like you don't do the violence, doctor. I do the violence, and if you do the violence, what am I here for? You know, is is kind of what it translates like into for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, um, yeah. I mean, I liked I liked her flirting with Benton and all that stuff. I thought that was not bad. I mean, uh, I think you've, you've 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 kind of got to hang on until Kate Orman gets hold of Ace to turn her into a likable character again. I sort of dimly recall you being right there, but I think for me, once once she came, once she once she left at the end of Happy um, Happy Endings, my arse, um, Love and War, that was kind of a good ending for the character, and when they brought her back because there was no consistency from one writer to the next and there were so many oh let's write her out again oh let's bring her back again oh let's write her out again it just became a bit of a a saga and yeah it's it's very difficult to like her apart from in the odd book um the Kate Orman books Steve Lyons conundrum I think she worked in there's probably loads more but yeah I've just had a move around in my office and now my new adventures are kind of directly behind my head so i can't scan them all and just remind myself of the ones i like which right is annoying it's like losing a limb um <laughs> I, am, I am actually turning around now but i can't see them just the just set, the set piece was the one for me where she finally becomes yeah, i like that piece was good i like to think that happy endings my ass was the sort of virgin adventure sort of like porn novel that never actually came out about <laughs> Well, they came close. I mean, if if Jason Kane can write Knights of the Perfume Tentacle, well, yeah, uh, fair point. Happy endings, my ass. You know, yeah. Chapter chapter two of that. 
so um, yeah <laughs> so yeah if anyone's listening who uh, still has any of the rights to these books locked in the in their office we we'd like to do a new new adventure called happy endings my arse i really thought you were going to say if anyone out there has got the right to my ass, please write in and let us know oh yeah no but but she's in the office today oh, fair so, enough. So, yeah it's it's fine so um i'm cutting that um, <laughs> <laughs> so um as a jim mortimer book maybe wh- where does this one stack up for you i'll you know i, I don't think it's spoiling anyone to say that I didn't think Bell Tempest was brilliant. Um, I did think Lucifer Rising was brilliant. I think Jim Mortimer is, or Jim Mortimore, as we are now calling him, <laughs> I think he is on balance brilliant. But where did this book stack up for you? Well, I, I don't know how many of my critical faculties I'm using for this, but this is my favourite book of his um partly out of nostalgia and partly from when i read it and it it was you know i i freely admit when i was uh, um reading this contemporaneously i i sadly fell into that hole of i want the seventh doctor to be this cosmic chess player i love when he's manipulating and stuff like that so i kind of liked it and i think it was a 90s thing i think we all went through it's a, a malaise we all went through but um so this is my favorite uh, almost certainly overall just because of when it happened and I, I despite all my uh, any criticisms of it I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it all the way through even if I was thinking oh my god ace I still can't stand you and all that it was really well written I mean Mortimore is very good at getting you to care about characters but after a while he becomes a little bit predictable in that if he writes a character that you're clearly meant to like, you know they're going to die in the next chapter. <laughs> you know, because he does that with with uh, uh, Morka and um, uh, oh, um, I've, I've forgotten the third Doctor's most famous companion, Joe Grant. Joe Grant, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and very and various others. So and that guy, uh, what was his name? Red Shirt. That uh, yeah. Ace has a. A somewhat implausible romance with. Yeah, yeah, I've completely forgotten his name as well now. It's That's... Alan, I want to say. Uh, yeah, something like that. I've, yeah. Uh, my, my my book is just out of reach, unfortunately. So, um, but yes, so so he's he's his own worst enemy in some ways. You know, there's going to be an apocalypse. You know, everyone you like is going to die. But he still writes in a very very sort of compelling way. I mean, and and he's kicking off the um alternate history cycle here because this is like a series of five books um and it doesn't it turn out it turns out to be the time meddler and the vardens teaming up oh fuck i'd forgotten about the vardens yeah yes no it's but it's it's the monk how did you so at the time i i think i'd read a couple of the target books that had the monk in but i'd never seen him and as I was reading these books month after month contemporaneously, I really wanted it to be the Valiard that was behind everything. Yeah. So when it was turned, when it was revealed, it was the monk and the Vardens. I was, I was, I was underwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, in no future, the end of this cycle, Paul Cornell, I think, I don't know if he, he was, he was obviously was handed them and said, this is who's behind it. 
he actually has the doctor verbally just destroy the monk and the Vardens in about two lines of dialogue. And it was clearly like, I've got to get on with this story. You're the villains. I can't do anything about that. I know you're rubbish. Everyone else knows you're rubbish. Let's just get on with it. Let's just deal with the whole thing about Ace being a traitor and move on. So, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, I didn't mind it being the meddling monk because by that stage, I had seen the faces of Doctor Who repeats and I th- I'm fairly sure um, the meddling monk William Hartnell episode, which is his only actual canon appearance. Mm. Um, I remember thoroughly enjoying it. I also remember being very confused as to why William Hartnell is locked in a room for a whole episode and we don't see him. But I later realised, found out it was because he was on holiday, I think. Yeah, or he'd been at the sherry, one of one, the two. One of the two, or even on the sherry at, on holiday. So, uh, Just for listeners who maybe aren't, aren't too sure about this story, there's a very good podcast called All of Time and Space, which um, talked about this not too long ago. It's uh, Mark Cockrum and some guy, oh, I want to say Ian someone. Check it out. Anyway. <laughs> But yeah, that's his only canon appearance. That's his only, at that point, it was his meddling monk's only novel appearance. So if we can project our minds back to 1993, the meddling monk would have been a big deal because it only been used once. And it was that guy from the Carry On films whose name I always forget. Yes, um, Peter Butterworth. Thank you, yeah. I mean, the, but, Var- the Vardens are naff. Uh, yeah. That, that yeah. I've been disappointed by. The meddling monk, though, I, I thought, oh, a Time Lord villain who isn't the master. Hmm. Yeah, see, I, you know, I was in many ways, I was quite a traditionalist and I was I was thinking, well, if it if it isn't going to be the Valiard, then at least let's have the only master come back. So um, had, because, had, had because he by the then? books, the, sorry, had he by then? Because he's in First Frontier and I can't remember where that comes in. The, he from... uh, First Frontier was about a year after this one. Oh, OK. Um, and. Oh, I forgot what I was going to say now. I'm but yeah, so uh, no, because the the Virgin New Adventures, you know, they're a, they're a comfort food for a few thousand nerds in the UK in the nineties who cannot accept that their TV show has gone, <laughs> and so I think it's entirely justified that reading them, I just want mainlining of what I'm missing out on from the TV show. So yeah. I want Ainley, I want the Valiard. I mean now. I, you know, Christ, no. I, if I was showrunner of Doctor Who, you wouldn't get a recurring monster. It would all be new every week. It would be different. There'd be no continuity, no backstory, no bringing back Perry or Mel or any of that. But at the time in the 90s, I was I was there for the continuity references and the callbacks and the, the idea that it was kind of a, a very small uh, sandpit and you had a finite number of characters to play with and they'd all recur. But yeah, the monk, that was a bit of a bit of a disappointment, I suppose. You wanted all the big hits, you wanted the big numbers, you didn't want the, the, did. the B sides. I did I wanted Omega. I didn't want oh Mega. Who was his sort of disappointing cousin? <laughs> you, didn't want the, you didn't want his Irish cousin, Omega. That's right. Yeah, that's where I, that's that's the joke I wish I'd had at my fingertips thirty so, seconds ago. Go, go back and edit. You you do it now. I then... will do that. I will okay. do that. I will I will duck back in using science, 
and um, change that. So, so when you read it, um, you thought it was amazing. How did the book kind of stack up rereading it 30 years later or 29 years later, if we're going to be pedantic? <laughs> Yeah, no, let's. Those extra 12 months. We should be pedantic. We're doing a bloody podcast about a 30-year-old children's book. I think we're allowed to be pedantic. Uh, I think you'll find we're doing a podcast about a 29-year-old. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) But, yeah, it's... um... It's still it's it's still very it's still incredibly readable. I whizzed through this book in like a couple of days. It's it's effortless to read. Um, there are it's mostly I mean the the alternate cycle, the alternate history cycle is is five books about Ace. Ace coming to terms with the fact that she can't leave, Ace coming to terms with the fact that she's an angsty so and so, um, and all of that. And there's a lot of this book where I'm just like, can we just get through the ace bits please you know you know even though i think he did a good job with her there's a lot of like yeah yeah okay yeah thanks yeah good yeah she kills things now yeah good good can we get on back to the action can we get the doctor back on the screen so it's it's uh it's it's a mixed it's a mixed bag overall i really like it it's one of those things where if you look at the ingredients you may not like all the things that are in the cake but when you get the cake you devour it because it tastes great. Oh, I want some cake now. So do I. Um, I'm trying to think. So of all the Jim Mortimer books, there was he co-wrote Lucifer Rising. There was uh, Blood Heat. The the next one I can think of is my favourite by Jim Mortimer, which was um, Eternity Weeps. But I'm sure there must be one or maybe two more that I'm forgetting and again if i'd only move these books oh do you know what i'm actually going to lean away from the desk and just look at the books parasite is the other one you're trying to think of i just realized oh yeah parasite yeah that's um yeah i don't i don't want to think about parasite but yeah, Eternity Weeps for me was my favourite, and then probably Lucifer Rising, and and then maybe this one. Yeah, what? Sorry, why don't you want to talk? Why don't you want to think about Parasite? You um, said that with a, a lot of weight you gave to that. There, Parasite so. was um, hard work. I seem to remember, and had that had that sort of pretend fake out regeneration, which um, oh yeah, I hate that until. Until the Russell T. Davis era, that wasn't a thing. But now, yeah. you know, he's regenerating every 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, he also actually, this was in the period when Doctor Who magazine was crossing over the novels and he wrote, Jim Mortimer, he wrote a lot of sort of short story preludes that lead into these novels. So, oh, yeah. yeah. They, they were they were pretty good. I like those. Oh, and he also did Eye of Heaven, the fourth Doctor one. I think that's the one I never because it was a past doctor book and I never bought them. But I think that's the one he mentions me in the dedication at the start, because in one of his earlier books, he was having trouble. A friend of his was going to be deported by the Home Office and he asked fandom to sort of send in a few letters saying, don't deport this guy. He contributes to ideas for our friend Jim's wacky science fiction books. So I, I wrote off to help out with that and uh yeah he, he mentioned me in the the credits to a book which is very kind wow 
So you you wrote a letter. You did the classic Doctor Who thing of writing a letter. I did. I, uh, I and I would have been nineteen twenty, so it would have been an unbelievably snotty piece of uh, <laughs> teenage arrogance. Yeah. The scribe Jim Mortimori is of such <laughs> beneficence; he must be preserved. Why, oh why, oh why <laughs> are you deporting his friend who might have said something but found its way into a book I like based on a dead television programme? <laughs> I haven't had sex in four years. <laughs> you know, you can imagine the kind of letter. I mean, I, I happen to have it open there on, on my laptop, so I was able to read it out word for word. But it was that kind of thing, <laughs> you know. Um, so is, that, is a point is a point of view letter. It just started. Why oh why oh why oh why? Just that for four pages. Yeah. Why oh why oh why oh why? Won't anybody hold my hand or tell me things are going to be okay? It's lonely without Doctor Who. You can't take this away from me. Yeah. Damn right. Um. So we've kind of we've talked about my fifth question already. Um. So my and i you know i could i could talk to you for the next three hours but it's you know i i, I can't i've got a meeting um so let's maybe just spend 10 minutes on um so you read the bbc books as well did you i read a lot of them i right, kind of went good. back yeah to like me. yeah i went back and obviously you know when they're coming out there's budget and there's also you know I make no bones about it. I like some doctors more than others. So others would go very much on the back burner. Mm. And um, I think there was a massive dip in quality as well. Although now that I'm doing this podcast, I'm reassessing whether or not that's actually the case. But at the time I felt like the eighth doctor books weren't as good. It seemed like a step backwards. They seemed a bit, especially when you start with the eight doctors and vampire science and things like that they seemed a lot more for a younger audience i felt like i had grown up with these virgin books and i, I wanted my doctor a bit more adult at the time yeah i think the first maybe four eight doctor books were not good and that kind of really the the range never kind of recovered from that even though book five or six was alien bodies which yeah pound for pound i would say is probably the best doctor who novel that they published um but of of the ones you read and not including past doctor books or we'll be here all day but what are you, what are some of your favorites overall of of the virgin or the eighth of the, of the virgin and the eighth um well this is obviously one of them um again because of nostalgia Time Worm, Gen Time Worm Genesis and Time Worm Apocalypse. Thought they were the first one. Looking back, I I don't it doesn't hold up as well, but because mm. it was like oh Doctor Who's back, I loved it. The Time Worm Apocalypse, where the Doctor meets his past selves in his own mind, which is still being used as a trope. I trope think you'll now. find that was Revelation. I'm be I'm being Revelation. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. sorry, you're quite right. I do apologise. You're you're absolutely right. Um, Ten points to me. Um, um, uh, just trying to think what other ones. Um, uh, is it Love and War where Bernice is introduced? Yes, that yes. one's a big. That one's a big favourite of mine, just because yep. because you've got a version of Ace I can actually get behind. You've got the Doctor being cold. You've got this new companion who I instantly liked. Yeah, and and also I like the fact that you've got uh, an alien race 
adversary that's based on a joke made by the fourth doctor as a throwaway comment in one of his episodes i might i might um i i don't uh, what, what what joke was that what did the, he say the uh i can't the remember Houthi. his comment the houthi but the comment was yeah. the houthi and that was um he just said oh. it as a throwaway comic comment comment and um yeah and so oh. and so they brought brought it in and uh, so, so on that's and so setting a precedent for Braxiatel because he was also a throwaway comment City of from, Death. A, from City of Death to, City come, of Death. Yeah, to come exactly. full circle, which uh, which is not to be confused with City of Death. City of Death is a classic full circle. Um, less so. Um, so. Carry on anyway. Other, so, other favourite books. I've interrupted you and I'm very <laughs> sorry. Alien Bodies, obviously, you've mentioned I quite like Revolution Man just because it did something different. Um, not sure if I'd like it now so much. Interference book one and two, the, mm-hmm. you know, the start of the whole faction paradox things. Shadows now, of Ab- now, actually, Let me stop you there. Okay. Interference one and two does exactly the same thing that Blood Heat does. It kills off the third doctor in a different way to how it was Which depicted is, yeah, on TV. Exactly. As I was just about mm-hmm. to say, because the next one I was going to mention that just occurred to me was the, was the Shadows of Avalon which also deals with a thoroughly depressed and miserable brigadier. Yes, and and I think that does the TARDIS get destroyed in that one as well? Something yes, because because then it's because compassion. compassion yeah, yeah. yeah. So so in interference and shadows of Avalon, you've got a very definite kind of callback to Blood Heat, which would only have been what maybe seven years old at that point, and I'm pretty sure everyone involved would have read blood heat so yeah, it's interesting minutes, that, yeah. that those themes kind of bubbled back to the surface so quickly yeah and then and because yeah it was it was 2000 that came out i remember that yeah, cause yeah. I, remember, I remember buying it before i went to a party bizarrely enough um you, you took a doctor who book to a part god that's brave not, not <laughs> well not consciously but yes i did yeah yeah i, I oh, absolutely I, did so, hey, are there any are there any nice girls here who, who perhaps want to talk to me? Oh, you've brought a Doctor Who book in. Go and stand in the corner on your own for three hours and then leave. But look, it's 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 got the Brigadier in it. Do you not remember the Brigadier? No? Anyone? Do you know, in the list of chat-up lines I've used, this one's got the Brigadier in it. Is is not even top ten, I'll be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I'm going to have to make sure I try and use that at some point now. It's got the Brigadier in it, whatever it is. double dare you to use that. So I feel like we should start talking about Twin Peaks now. That's our usual tangent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, we could. We've got 10 minutes. But I mean, were there any other books after Interference and Shadows of Avalon? Human human Nature is a a classic. Um, Just War is one of my big favourites. Yes, that was mind blowing, wasn't it? Yeah. So I think, I think for me, two of the the other classics of the two Lloyd Rose Eighth Doctor books, um, Camera Obscura and yeah. City of the Dead. Otherwise, um, yeah, I think I think you've named a, a pretty unquestionable bunch of sturdy classics. Did you ever read any of Mortimer's, uh non Doctor Who novels? Because he's he wrote Babylon Five novels and Farscape novels. Good God, did he really? No, I didn't. Yeah. Well, um, you're not I... missing anything with the Babylon 5 ones. I can't <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> well, I, I defer to your superior uh, 
knowledge of, of Mortimore, and it, I mean, it, it must be pronounced Mortimore. You're clearly of the two of us. You're much more of a serious scholar of the man and his work and his oeuvre. Um, <laughs> All I, I just, know is is that when the moon hits your eye, like a like big a big pizza, pizza pie, pie, it's who who would that have been? I'm pretty sure that's Mortimore. Good lord. Now for some serious and slightly more profound opinions on the book with our guests from the reading group. Please welcome Kevin, Andrew, David and James. Hi all. So this month I'm looking at the 19th New Adventures novel, Blood Heat, a tale of old friends and old enemies. Although no one's quite who you remember. The author's a familiar one too, namely Jim Mortimer, who I last encountered a few months ago when reviewing the 8th Doctor story, Bell Tempest. Back then, I sort of liked his writing, even if I wasn't won over by the story he was trying to tell. Will this one be a disappointment? Well, let's get the good news out of the way immediately. I really enjoyed this book. Sure, it's an alternate Earth story, one where the third Doctor dies during the events of the Silurians and things turn left from there. But that's fine. Many a great novel has been spun out of a simple what-if scenario. And Mortimer's reptile-ruled world is beautifully realised. Neither side in the conflict's evil, but equally neither's entirely sympathetic. Everyone's motivations have emotional weight, and are logical, yet complex. It would have been easy to just cut and paste the 1970s unit crew into a bleak 1993, but you can see they've all been changed by the experiences of the intervening 20 years. Lee Shaw may still fundamentally be the same caring scientist, but you can sense the fear and the weariness and sometimes abject terror in her actions and the grizzled brigadiers become an obsessive, furious with his doctor for dying and leaving them to do what he thinks is right, no matter what the cost. And Benton's a borderline psycho. And let's not dwell on poor Joe Grant. Once again with Mortimer's writing, I find myself greatly enjoying his descriptive prose. As with Bell Tempest, he really invokes a sense of place. But this time, everything feels that much more cohesive. Yes, there are action set pieces and violent acts involving multitudes of dinosaurs and characters striving against tremendous odds, with death lurking around every corner, but it all feels in service of the story, and the losses mean something. And he actually does some interesting things with the Silurians, making them feel far more real than any of the television stories have done. And AC's discovery of the Doctor's corpse in the Cyclotron base feels suitably horrific, yet very, very melancholic. And she actually has a great role in this story, although, gosh, she really is an angry young lady, isn't she? And I like the flying Nitro 9 smart bombs. Definitely something that the modern TV series would do. Benny served far less well, but, hey, companions get sidelined all the time, so while it's a shame, it's not really a problem story-wise. If I have niggles... It's that Mortimer seems to be going for the madcap loon version of the Seventh Doctor, all whirling arms and pratfalls, which is not a take I particularly enjoy. And he seems to have a bit of an obsession with the Brigadier's swagger stick. He gets a mention in almost every scene, as if it's an extra character. Oh, and the alternate universe getting destroyed by a time ram is a bit of a cop-out, perhaps, but I guess it was necessary as part of the larger tale that the various writers are going to be telling. Clearly there's more to come here, with the original TARDIS lost in a tar pit, maybe to become a fossil, 
a la classic DWM comic strip, The Stockbridge Horror, and whoever's behind the creation of this alternate Earth is still to be revealed. It's going to be a good while before we get there, though. All in all, Blood Heat was a big step up from my last Jim Mortimer book, and probably the novel I've enjoyed most since I read All Consuming Fire well, way back in episode two. I might even be curious enough to seek out the non-Doctor Director's Cut version that he released some 20 years later. So, Blood Heat is um, actually one of the earliest new adventures that I read. Um, and I've told this story before, but I became a fan, a proper fan, kind of collecting merchandise, buying the books, um, buying Doctor Who magazine and everything like that after the TV movie um, had aired. Um, I was quite young in 89 when the show finished, but I had watched it in the Sylvester McCoy era. We used to sit down and, and watch it, me and my brother, with my dad. Um, so I'd had those memories. And I'd really enjoyed the Planet of the Daleks repeat in 93. Um, but in 96, it really felt like, you know, the, the show was on its way back. Um, which, of course didn't transpire to be but obviously after the tv movie i was then kind of had this voracious appetite for doctor who fiction um and blood heat i bought at the same time as i bought the missing adventure speed of flight um i must have had some birthday money or christmas money or something like that um and you could still buy them just in wh smith or or in your local bookshop at that point they'd not yet gone out of print although they weren't far away from doing so and I was just attracted to the, the front cover with the Silurian on there and, and the TARDIS appearing to kind of sink in that sort of tropical, jungly atmosphere. It just looked really atmospheric and looked like it would be a fun book. So, of course, diving into it, it's in the middle of a bit of a story out for the new adventures. There's an awful lot that's happened. There's a lot of antagonism between Ace and the Doctor, which is something that um, seemed to have come from nowhere for me because I'd not followed the books chronologically in order. But it was interesting because I think by the time I'd read that, I'd seen some of their TV stuff. I think I'd seen Curse of Fenric and Ghostlight, um, both of which kind of lay the foundations for that relationship, actually. The Doctor is very manipulative and Ace is quite young and forgiving. But it is conceivable that as she grows up, she'd start to resent the Doctor for treating her um, kind of like an experiment in the way that he seems to do. So that really fit for me, and that slightly older version of Ace um, was believable for me. But I think the really interesting bit is kind of like that, you know, the parallel world, um, the alternative brigadier, um, the Silurians having taken over. Third Doctor is gone, he's, you know, he's dead, um, but his TARDIS is still there which, of course, becomes an important plot point and, you know, we're to believe um, that the Seventh Doctor's TARDIS, so the original TARDIS for us, if you like, has been buried um, early on in the book. Um, so the new TARDIS becomes kind of a slightly unfamiliar but familiar thing. Um, I seem to remember there being some writing about that, about Ace feeling a little unsettled inside there. Um, but the central kind of story of the Doctor being responsible for the timelines and having to put it right and having that kind of burden is really interesting because when you look at that scene between Sophie Aldred and uh, Sylvester McCoy that's aired recently in The Power of the Doctor and she says, you know, I didn't understand the burden that you carried 
It's almost like Chibnall's acknowledging that timeline, the new adventures timeline, um, because what she mentions about them having fallen out and the kind of slightly oblique reasons behind it do fit with what we know from the new adventures and from that particular um, strand of continuity. And I find that quite interesting because only recently in Sophie Aldred's Childhood Zen book, um, the new adventures were kind of sidelined a little bit into a sort of one of the potential timelines. Um, and this kind of warped timeline thing of Blood Heat interests me massively as a fan because it's the answer to canon for me. And, and once I kind of got my head around it um, and developed my own theory... I stopped worrying about what was canonical and I can read a new adventure now and enjoy it. I can read one of the Eighth Doctor adventures, one of the past Doctors, anything like that. Um, any of the comic strips. And I can just enjoy them as Doctor Who fiction because, you know, this is a time traveller who, who sort of, you know, is riddled, his timeline is riddled with paradox. We even see that in the TV series um, when Matt Smith visits his own tomb in Trenzalore. And it's just all over the place and all these little spines of, of the Doctor's timeline. Um, you know, they suggest to me that the books, the audios, the television series, they can all have happened, but then potentially not have happened or maybe happened slightly differently as other things shift and change around. And like the Ninth Doctor says, you know, time's in flux. And your history can be rewritten at the click of a finger. Um, and I think once you accept that about the Doctor's timeline, it becomes much more interesting. So Blood Heat, for me, is a, is a full-bodied and full-blooded Doctor Who adventure that has ramifications for the characters. It really affects the relationship between the Doctor and Ace and ties in with you know, Ace forgiving the Doctor all those years later as part of Power of the Doctor. Um... And I think that, you know, the New Adventures timeline, there's so much in there that's meaty that to kind of write them off as non-canonical spin-off fiction um, is a waste because Blood Heat is New Adventures at their absolute best. Um, you know, just fantastic. Great characterisation of, of the Brigadier. I know we've seen a parallel Brigadier before in Inferno, but, you know, the one in Blood Heat feels let down, feels like a, a bit of a failure. Um, and, you know, everyone is characterised brilliantly. The Seventh Doctor is, is a spot-on version of that kind of dark, manipulative Doctor that we were seeing, particularly in Season 26, um, in stories like Ghostlight and the Curse of Fenric. Um, the central moral dilemma. I always remember when the Eighth Doctor adventures um, started up and I read Genocide. I probably read Genocide within a year of having read Blood Heat and noticed huge parallels between like the Eighth Doctor having to destroy the Tractites and, and set time back onto, uh, onto its correct path. Uh, it's exactly what the Seventh Doctor had had to do in Blood Heat, and I found it really interesting looking at these two ostensibly very different interpretations of the Doctor, having the same moral quandary with their companion and having to do the same thing. Um, you know, Blood Heat is seminal Doctor Who fiction for me. Uh, it's descriptive, um, it's exciting, it's an adventure, it's got moral questions, it's got a fascinating Doctor and companion dynamic. Um, 
you know, it's just it's everything that you would want your Doctor Who fiction to be. And I remember being struck by how grown up it was. And some of the new adventures try to be grown up by just throwing swear words in there and and actually end up seeming a little bit immature because of it. Now, looking back, um, you know, that it's kind of, oh, you know, we are rock and roll Doctor Who, you know, and we don't care and, and we're going to throw something in there like that. But when the new adventures hit right, they really hit right. And Blood Heat, for me, is an example of that. It's just a phenomenal piece of work um, and I can't recommend it highly enough. I suspect that most of the contributions to this podcast are going to be raving about what a fantastic book Blood Heat is. And I will just very quickly say right at the top, I agree with that. This is in my top five new adventures. It is a fantastic book. But Ian tells us that these contributions are meant to be a bit more personal and about what the book means to us as individuals. So I'll start by saying that The Silurians is my all-time favourite Doctor Who story. And The Cave Monsters is my all-time favourite Doctor Who target novel. So getting a sequel to that story was really, really special. But the fact that the sequel actually understood the Silurians and the characters that Malcolm Hulk had created and really gave them even more depth and even more pathos was just a wonderful thing to discover. 1993 was, of course, the 30th anniversary of Doctor Who. And it was just a wonderful thing to be in Doctor Who fandom at that point. I was 13 years old, and for a show that had been off the air for four years, Doctor Who was just going from strength to strength. The new adventures had really found their feet, and in 1993 it just felt like classic hit after classic hit was just coming out every month. They discovered how to mix in items from the show's past in a really effective way, and they knew how to write for what fans wanted. They discovered how to make the stories properly big, properly adult, properly epic and blood heat does that perhaps better than any of them the world which jim mortimer creates with silurians and dinosaurs and jungle and abandoned human cities is just spectacular i can remember reading this at the age of 13 and many of the set pieces in blood heat are still as vivid in my memory as a set piece from a televised story of doctor who this is the new adventures in its imperial phase. It was part of that wonderful anniversary year where the merchandise was coming out. Doctor Who magazine was going from strength to strength. We had fantastic Seventh Doctor comics in the magazine, including Final Genesis, which also featured the Silurians and dovetailed so well with Blood Heat. Everything just seemed to be working for us as fans and the books were absolutely marvellous. This book is so well written. It's a sequel to my favourite story and a worthy sequel to my favourite story. It's memorable, it's epic, it's the best of what the new adventures can do. Science fiction has always done what-if stories. What if the Nazis had won the Second World War? What if the Roman Empire had never fallen? What if someone came from a different dimension? Answer, their evil counterpart would have a beard. Doctor Who, though, being a time travel series really sometimes needs to think about its what-if stories. Bloodheat is a really good example of this one. The nature of the what-if, what if the Doctor had lost to the Silurians and their virus had wiped out the Earth, is pretty straightforward. But in the greater scheme of things, this particular what-if idea has bigger problems. The Doctor dies during the Silurian invasion. Seemingly, that's not a problem. But then you start to look at what the Doctor did 
after his third regeneration, or indeed, after the Silurians. The third Doctor, for example, went back in time and stopped Commander Lynx from taking over the Earth, or claiming it at least for the Sontaran Empire. So hold on, if the Doctor dies during the Silurians, does that mean that no Doctor went back, which meant that Earth got claimed for the Sontaran Empire, which means that Earth should be very different because the Sontarans presumably will have turned it into a clone world? Or what about the fourth Doctor? The fourth Doctor went back and defeated the Mandragora Helix. Oops. For me, the best one, though, is the fifth Doctor. The fifth Doctor, if the third Doctor died, the fifth Doctor never came into existence, which means that Terminus never happened. Issues about whether that's a good thing or not is for another day. But in Terminus, the Doctor started the universe. So hold on. Does that mean that the universe would never have started if the Doctor died from the Silurian Plague? Or do we have to assume that someone like the Master or Third Time Lord from the left somehow decided to leave Gallifrey and pick up the mantle of Universal Do-Gooder and kick-started the Big Bang themselves? Don't get me wrong, Blood Heat is a really good story but it doesn't half leave an awful lot of questions hanging in the air that really it probably can't ever answer. Agent Orange, I wonder if you could uh, order me some lunch to be delivered from uh, Spice Life. The Chicken 65 and a vegetable... Biryani, please. Yes, Master. And uh, obviously a couple of roti, uh, a mango lassi, and um, a palak paneer, please. Will that be all, Master? Uh, yes, I, I think. Unless I need some uh, couple of couple of vegetable samosa as well, please. Yes, sir. You fat bastard. Well, wasn't that a wonderful look at a wonderful book? And next month, we are going back into the world of the Eighth Doctor Adventures to peer inside the Camera Obscura. Until then, take care, everyone. <laughs>